This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. John Wood, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you. My pleasure. John is here with us today to talk about his biography, which I really like the title of, How I Clawed My Way to the Middle. And the book itself is very self-deprecating in a way, isn't it? Uh, no airs and graces here, John. Is that right? Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know about that? Well, that's certainly the feeling that I got. I'm just going to do an intro. John is an actor. He grew up in working class Melbourne when he failed out of high school, an employment officer told him you have the mind of an artist and the body of a labourer. I love that. And so John continued to pursue his acting dreams in amateur theatre, sustaining himself by working jobs as a bricklayer, a railway clerk, and even at the same abattoir as his father. When he won a scholarship to NIDA in Sydney, it moved John into a new and at times baffling world full of extraordinary characters. It was the start of decades-long acting career, most famously on Rafferty's Rules and Blue Heelers, where his charm made him beloved in households across the country. His popularity was such that he was nominated for a gold Logie, an incredible nine times in a row. Oh, my God, is that right? Nine times. I think it was actually 11, but... Oh, 11. Okay. There no, you go. I don't, I don't know. I think, I think I was nominated for 10 years in a row, and I think it was the 10th year that I won it. Yeah, wow. Anyway, you did win. You did win. Do you know? (laughs) Um, So uh, I want to talk about, you know, how how you came to write a memoir. But firstly, I want to talk about how your career started. But also, I love this quote at the back of the book that you've got. And uh, I don't know who said it. It's somebody said to you, your job is to go out there, grab the audience by the balls and drag them up on the stage with you. Who was that? Yes, that was uh, John Clark, who was at the time uh, the history of theatre teacher at NIDA. He went on to become the director of NIDA and was there for many, many years. And uh, I saw him in the front row of the, the last show I did, actually, in the at the Ensemble in Sydney earlier this year, and uh, I didn't get a chance to talk to him. We got stuck doing publicity after the show, and uh, by the time I managed to get out of the foyer... He'd gone home, I guess. He was uh, the director of NIDA. Right. That's a really good quote. Well, it's, I think it's the reason. I, it was something that I understood. Tell me about how it came to be. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Croydon uh, in Victoria, which is about 20 k's that way. Yeah. Describe what kind of suburb it was for those that don't know Melbourne. Well, Croydon was an outer suburb in those days. It's very much an inner suburb now, but, uh, well, it's it's still called the Outer East, I suppose. But then it was the bush. Dad was from Swan Hill and Mum was from Port Melbourne and 
when they got married and finally decided they were going to buy a house of their own, they were going to go to Altona because mum's brother was there, but dad decided he wanted to get back to the country. And for him, the country, of course, was Swan Hill up on the Murray River. But Croydon was pretty country back then. It was an, an, uh, an orchard, a pear-growing region that we were... Our house was built on an old pear orchard. It was a large... It was part of a large orchardist's area, mainly grew cherries, you know, stone fruit, cherries, apples... And there was still a bit of remnant bush in those days and Mullum Mullum Creek flowed not far from where we lived. So you were at the local primary school probably? Yes, I went to Ringwood East Primary School. And did you have aspirations then? Not really, no. No. I don't know know where the desire to be an actor came from. I, uh, I think about myself and I look back through my life and I... It's just something I always wanted to do. I, I don't know why. I, um, Any actors in your family? No, not as far as I know. Um, right. Although apparently my father confessed to my mother-in-law many, many years later and many, many years ago now that he'd always, uh, he, he wouldn't have minded being an actor, but I don't know where that would have come from. Uh, you know, it always seems quite weird to me that a boy from Swan Hill would have even considered it. And so when did you start considering it? Were you like in the school plays? Were you participating? Like, you know, when I went to school, I remember those people, not that any of them have become famous, but I do remember those people that were drawn to the musicals, that were drawn to the theatre, and they showed enormous talent at a very young age. Was that you? Um, I don't know about enormous talent, but I I was certainly drawn to to that sort of thing that... I have no recollection of where it started. I, I had a next-door neighbour. There was a big shed next door to our front garden and they used to build stainless, not stainless, the um, galvanised iron water tanks. I remember going to see a show that uh, the, this guy that built water tanks was in uh, and uh, I was... Quite, you know, like I, I think of it now, and I can't, I can't imagine how he or anybody else would have gotten involved. I, I think it must have been the one day of the year. The play must have been the one day of the year because it's, uh, it's the only play I think anybody had heard of, heard of, you know, apart from Summer of the Seventeenth Doll. And I think he played the young guy in the one day of the year, and seeing him up on stage would have been a revelation. I have no recollection of it at all, but seeing him on stage must must have been a real revelation. And then one year there was a school concert when we were in about fifth grade and my friend Patrick Ford tap-danced, you know, as as a redcoat soldier, jack and apes, and, and I don't think any of us had any idea that he'd been having tap dancing lessons but he went out there and tap danced fiercely (laughs) and you know I thought oh gosh that'd be interesting to do but I I don't know when I went to secondary school for some reason well I know that the reason we had a teacher who who knew the kids weren't going to read the book of one act plays you know like Kids just, well, most people can't read plays, you know. I mean, I find them very challenging because I can't visualise what I'm meant to be visualising. I need to read it and they have such words, don't they? Yeah, 
I can understand that. It's, uh, yeah. But I've never had any trouble reading plays, yeah, reading dialogue. Wow. It just seems to, it seems quite natural to me. And uh, when I eventually came to read Shakespeare, I sort of found that comprehensible, which a lot of my peers didn't. And were you an avid reader? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, I, I remember okay. that reading. That makes sense. When I was, uh, I can't remember how old I was, but I was in about third grade or something, and uh, I read the first of the Secret Seven books mm. from cover to cover in one sitting, you know, like probably while Dad was listening to the Test Match from England on the radio. But um, I do remember having uh, reading that as my first book and getting through it and thinking, what a fantastic, you know, like it... Reading always manages to take me away completely. Mm. You know, I can actually get totally involved in a book. You know, it doesn't matter what's going on around. You know, I have no problem getting lost in any sort of a book, really. But, see, I think that's storytelling, isn't it? So you had a passion for storytelling at a young age because you can argue that being an actor is a storyteller, can't you? Well, yes, yes, absolutely. It's the same thing, really. Um, I am obviously not an actor, but I'm a big reader and reading was very, very influential in my early days because English was a second language for me when I was little. My parents spoke Arabic and when I started school, I couldn't speak English at all. So as you can imagine, you know, stories were very formative. But I have grown up, and this is the same with theatre, I've grown up when I watch a film, when I watch a play, when I read a book, I don't see any of the work. I just absorb the story. I feel that I've, I don't know whether it's good or bad. I mean, sometimes I watch a movie or I might go and see a play with somebody and they, they start whispering the techniques to me. No, 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 no. I don't want that. I just want no, to be no. the receiver. I want to be the audience and I want to enjoy that story. And when it's writing, right, when you're reading a book, the craft, there's the story itself, but there's also the craft of writing. And that pleasure is enhanced more when the craft is seamless, Right. But yeah. I think it's the same in acting. Yes, for sure. I mean, I uh, the worst theatre I've ever seen is where people demonstrate what they're doing, you know. Like I remember when we were at NIDA, we, uh, we were taken along to see a, a show which was called Julius Caesar in rehearsal. And so the actors were being asked to rehearse Julius Caesar and explain to us what they were doing while they were rehearsing Julius Caesar. And... And it be, it just was incredibly dull, mm-hmm. you know, despite mm-hmm. the fact that the actors were good actors. What they were being asked to do was was just ridiculous in a way. And I mean, we just uh, we found it hysterical. We found it just stupid and funny. And uh, and of course, they were mightily offended. <laughs> I can imagine. Now, tell me, to get into NIDA isn't easy. And for those um, international listeners that we have, it's a very selecting acting school, you know, where the likes of, what, Mel Gibson, Nicole Kidman, would that be right? Mel certainly did. Mel Mel was a a product of uh, John Clark's NIDA. Yeah, uh, lots of big-name Australians um, who were on the international circuit. But either way, I mean, very few places and not easy to get into. So tell me the process for you of getting into NIDA because, you know, I mean, you're just a kid from suburban Melbourne. I mean, how did that happen? Well, not from any knowledge of mine. I, <laughs> I, I Probably my greatest mentor in 
in my life was uh, a guy named John Ellis, who was a teacher at Ringwood Tech. And he married a woman who'd been to NIDA and they together formed a, a company called Melbourne Youth Theatre in Melbourne and uh, quite an alumni, really. Um, I was one of many. Wendy Hughes apparently started there. Max Gillies uh, started there and I, uh, I worked with Max. I'd never ever worked with Wendy. I saw Wendy um, in these COVID days and we were all locked up. I decided to watch my brilliant career the other day. It was showing on the ABC. Oh, yeah. And I saw Wendy and I read afterwards that she has since died because she was a fine actor. She was a great actor. I, I worked yeah. with her um, at Melbourne Theatre Company years later. Uh, she was at NIDA uh, the year after me. So, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, I, I knew her. I, I, I'd met her, but I didn't really have any anything much to do with her. But she was a terrific actor. Yeah. So you've, you're in part of this Melbourne Theatre Group. I want to know how you actually applied to get into NIDA. Well, and how Lois you Ellis, who was yeah. John's wife, yeah. got me an application form. And she said, I think you better fill this in and see how you go. So I filled it in and sent it off. And the only requirement was that you had to have your leaving certificate, which I didn't have. So you hadn't finished year 10 yet? Oh, I, no, no. 10 I'd finished year, year Oh, yeah. I'd, I'd been out working in the community at the time that I did this audition for... Oh, I see. ...working for the railways by then. And I was in this group called Melbourne Youth Theatre and... Uh, I did the audition for the then director of NIDA, who was a guy named Tom Brown, who was a very nice fellow, and uh, I had to do the audition in uh, Russell Street Theatre. And despite the fact that I didn't have my leaving, we decided to uh, that I should audition anyway. So I went and did the audition, and uh, I can't remember what I did. I think it might have been a speech from... Uh, a play called A that I'd done with Max. Uh, Max directed it and I played the lead. Uh, and it was uh, a role that had, uh, originally had been played in the UK by David Warner. And uh, it was a play called A. And I think I did a speech, but in the, in the, the play, my character didn't do the speech. It was a speech done by Tony Taylor who's since gone on to become a, a very well-known Australian actor. I did a speech of Tony's about dinosaurs, I think. But anyway, look, I can't remember. And Tom Brown it was humiliating. Tom Brown said to me, uh, can you sing? And I said, oh, yeah. He said, well, sing something. <laughs> I, and I, the only song I could even vaguely remember was um, the Defendant song from uh, Trial by Jury, which I'd played at um, Ringwood Tech. I'd played the Defendant in a production of Trial by Jury in, in which a girl uh, named Beverly Thatcher, whom I had a huge crush on at the time, played the, the uh, potential bride and... Uh, Sean Girton played the judge. Sean was uh, a year behind me at Tech and uh, at the time was a wonderful boy soprano, but, of course, he went on to become a great theatre designer, which he still is today. And uh, uh, so that was the only song I could remember, but it had the most, you know, when I'd done it at school, I'd been terribly embarrassed by it because it all, all seemed so twee and gay, you know, that... 
it was a breach of promise case, you know, like he promised yeah. to marry this girl played by Beverly and uh, and had broken his promise. So breach of promise was the uh, crime that he'd committed. But he had this song where he uh, had to do his own defence and uh, and it always, it, it, the chorus of the song was uh, Tinker Tank, Tinker Tank, Tinker Tank which I thought was very weird, why, why you would sing something like that, I have no idea. But, uh, and I always felt there, there was something vaguely, I mean, gay wasn't even a term back then, but there's something vaguely gay about it and not quite right. <laughs> I was always embarrassed when I had to sing it and, uh, and I was equally embarrassed singing it for Tom Brown. But anyway, I got in and... Because <laughs> how many people would they have taken? Back then, we had, uh, there were 36. Yeah, that's not many. All around Australia taken yeah. in our first year. And 36 was a big number mm-hmm. because they, you know, they, they took in more than they really wanted. They, they really only wanted about 25 or something. But the more people that came in, the more money they got in and the, the more money they had to use and... Even then, I still didn't have any money and uh, I got a scholarship. Despite the fact that I didn't have my leaving certificate, you know, I got in on the audition, (laughs) the terrible song, and uh, I got a scholarship of $6 a fortnight, which... uh, (laughs) And you moved to Sydney. And I moved to Sydney and uh, went to drama school and... And what was that like? Because what did your parents think of that choice of career? I mean, it's so far removed from the life you were living, right? Yes, it was something like I'd never experienced. You know, like I I walked into the old tote area of the University of New South Wales. I'd never spent much time in universities. My girlfriend at the time, who's my wife, Leslie, uh, went to Monash and... uh, I used to go and pick her up from Monash but um, or drop her off there and uh, that was my only experience of university. So I, I walked into this University of New South Wales into the, the area that was NIDA and the first person I met was a very gorgeous woman named Sonia Humphrey who you may or may not remember, she did some. She did a lot of stuff in the early days of Today Tonight. She was a, a host. She she was at NIDA as a, as a production student, not as an acting student. And uh, when she graduated from NIDA, she didn't do much in the way of production. What she mainly did was television presentation and she was a very beautiful woman, but totally out of my orbit. Somebody, uh, you know, like a woman like I'd never known in my entire life. And she was the first person that spoke to me. And I was amazed that she even spoke to me. <laughs> was, uh, uh, such and why? Because it well, was, she was such a different, different world. class and such yes, a Yes, yes. You know, like yeah. she clearly not from the same world I was. And uh, yeah. people say that there is no class culture in Australia. I mean, some people say that, but when you, I don't know if it's as as defined now it was back then. But I I hear you. I feel because you know I was born in inner city Glebe to be brought up in Glebe. The only worst place to be brought up at the time was Balmain. You know, I mean, it was just. <laughs> 
was very uh... poor suburbs, right? And so I, I remember feeling that, well, I probably never met anyone like her anyway, but I think now your reaction to meeting somebody that you say was probably a different class, do you think that still exists? Oh, I don't know that it exists to the same yeah. degree. Yeah. I mean, it, it certainly existed then. Yes, uh, yeah. Like, and what did your parents think? Parents, I don't think my parents knew, well, like everybody, they, they had no idea. I mean, nobody had ever even heard of, that. nobody knew an actor. Everybody knew Chips Rafferty, but I don't think they thought of him as an actor. And I think people would be, I can't remember his real name now, but uh, Chips was actually a Jewish guy who changed his name to Chips Rafferty. And he was clearly something of a great actor, you know, because he captured the Australian psyche of the time extremely well. But like Roy Reen was Jewish and... um, I'm not saying not one of us, but it was different to working class Aussie boys. And uh, but he made that that wonderful Chips Rafferty character iconic, mm. in a sense. And maybe you know, but I don't think we actually thought of Chips as a, a as an actor, Frank Thring. But everybody knew he was just a poof, and uh, you know, like. And then we then Rod Taylor came along and uh, he went off to Hollywood and uh, became quite well known. And the the only other person we knew anything about was maybe Noel Ferrier because of his in Melbourne Tonight Show mm-hmm. alongside people like Graham Kennedy. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Was the experience for you like pinching yourself? Would you wake up in the morning and think, how did I get here? Or you just slid into it and just went for the ride? I guess I don't know about pinching myself, but I probably, I I don't have any real recollections of it. I I remember that I was in a totally foreign land, uh, you know, like I was, not only was I in this university environment, I was living in Sydney. And uh, Sydney was totally different to Melbourne. I mean, I I, I, I don't know, I, I had a radio in my car. I, whether it was a, a transistor that you carried around with you or a, a, an actual car radio, but it was, I remember arriving in Sydney and parking under a tree on Anzac Parade and looking at a newspaper to see if I could find somewhere to rent 
No pre-planning. You just drove well, up no, there. No, I had no idea what I was going to do. And, uh, well, in those days, <laughs> these days it's easy because it's all online or it's all yeah. somewhere. But, I mean, we didn't even get Sydney papers down here. You know, no. I had no idea how to go about it. So I got a local paper to look up what was for rent and I then went round to a place in Randwick in St Mark's Road and rented a flat. <laughs> so, and, you know, that all happened, you know, in the one day of driving up from Melbourne in my old MG and listening to the radio and hearing John Laws for the first time. <gasps> you uh, poor thing. And was, <laughs> you know, I, That's not a good introduction to Sydney. Well, that was, you know, I had no idea. <laughs> I, I was, so there I was for the first time actually away from home on my own, a million miles away from the family, no mobile phones, mm. no none of that stuff, and uh, I just felt like I was on a different planet. So what was your first professional paid gig? The first professional paid gig was supposed to be a death of a salesman with the old tote theatre in, uh, again, based in Randwick, they were based around the uh, old tote theatre and the parade theatre in Kensington. But it turned out to be a television gig. I finished NIDA and I finally got an agent and, uh, and I was offered a job on a show called Minus Five, a funny title, a weird title, and it, it never stuck because it became barrier reef by the time it actually went to air but it was a, a fauna productions show and it was set on the barrier reef and and i'd signed i'd signed a contract to do 12 months with the old tote i'd been offered two jobs when i came out of night one with the old tote and one with the melbourne theater company and i decided to to stay in sydney and go to the old tote because if i'd come back to melbourne i thought i would end up living with my parents and falling back into all those old habits and borrowing money I couldn't afford to repay and stuff like that. So I stayed in Sydney to work at the Old Tote and I got this job on television and it had never occurred to me to work on television. I never had any interest in it. And uh, But the first thing I actually did was this show called Minus Five and ridiculously, you know, like it was about to start shooting and it would shoot, I think, start shooting between Christmas and New Year and then in the New Year I was to start at the Old Tote. So, but then Actors' Equity went on strike. Oh, And I just joined Actors' Equity. (laughs) There was a strike and I wasn't allowed to to go and... uh, and I, I had no idea what I should be doing, you know. <laughs> like my agent was saying, well, you've signed a contract to go to Queensland and do this show. And I said, yes, I know, but the Actors' Equity have, are on strike. And Actors' Equity rang me and said, no, you're on strike, you can't go. That was my first job. <laughs> and I thought, well, my career's over before it even starts. Yeah, and then, you know, like I, my agent, who at the time was Faith Martin, uh, told Fauna Productions that I was on strike and wouldn't be going when required. And the next phone call I had, I'd never had many phone calls in my life anyway, but the next phone call was from a woman named Joy Cavill, who was a producer at Fauna Productions, who'd made Skippy, of course. Right. And Joy Cavill, when I eventually met her, was about four foot eight, 
and <laughs> a bit of a dynamo, but the phone call was the most expletive-ridden uh, <laughs> conversation I ever had with anyone. And it turned out she was a woman who was four foot eight. And, uh, you know, she just abused the shit out of me and uh, all these four-letter words explained to me that I would never work again if I didn't turn up for this show, she would make sure that I would never get another job in the industry at all. Anyway, the, mercifully, the, it was resolved. I don't know how it was resolved, but the strike didn't go ahead. And uh, I flew to Brisbane to do, uh, or to Hayman Island, in fact, to do... Very nice. Barrier Reef. Well, you know, like... Yeah. It was an amazing experience because I'd never been in a plane before, so I got 727 from Mascot to Brisbane and I was amazed coming into Brisbane to see cattle <laughs> <laughs> not very far from the runway and uh, and then flew out on a Fokker friendship to Proserpine and then by Sikorsky helicopter to, to Hayman Island all in the space of a few hours and then started shooting on a, a ship called the New Endeavour, a, a, a sort of a replica of the, the Endeavour with all the mod cons and we uh, spent 10 days on the Barrier Reef. But did you find that working for your money, like, you know, being an actor and actually working and and being paid, did it feel like work? Like a lot of actors say that they love their job so much that it doesn't feel like work. Because I often think that that takes away from the professionalism of it and the craft of it. But how did you feel showing up there? I probably thought I I never thought about it, but I, I think I probably would have thought how great it was to get paid to do something that you like doing. Um, but it was a, you know, television for me was not a something I'd ever wanted to do, you know, like my... Even though you went on to do years and years of television? Well, well, you know, I've ended up spending half my career on television and have been very successful at it and uh, and I, I now love it. But um, back then, I mean, television was a bit beneath our dignity, you know, like it wasn't the real, it wasn't the real art form, it wasn't the theatre, but then I don't... I really don't think of theatre as an art form much anyway. I think of it much more as, as a craft. But um, it was, you know, like it was great to actually, I mean, I felt this is fantastic, you know. Yeah. I'm, I'm on a boat <laughs> on, on, the, on the Whitsunday Passage. and, uh, and Beautiful. There, and there was catering, film catering. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. What a great career. <laughs> And they feed you. Yes, they pay you as well. But I I was very pleased to start earning a living and, uh, you know, like having earning, uh, you know, while I was at NIDA, I think I managed to, well, I had the scholarship for $6 a fortnight and uh, I think I earned about $6 a week operating a follow spot at the Music Hall in Neutral Bay. Yeah, you know, suddenly to be on a on an income, an equity minimum uh, that first year that I was in the business, equity minimum was $52 a week. Yeah, wow. Equity minimum has always had the reputation of being slightly under the poverty line. Yeah, yeah, it's not great. There was two long form, long years of um, TV, Rafferty's Rules and uh, Blue Healers. In being in character for a length of time, 
talk to me about that. Is it like doing the same job for 20 years or is it that you're changing and you're developing and you're growing with the character? How is it? I, I certainly, I've never made a citizen's arrest. No. I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't come to think of myself as a, a real policeman or a magistrate. Well, that's good. But I, um, people say to me, oh, Blue Healers was 12 years. Yeah, it's and, a long time. Uh, People say, didn't you get bored? And I, the, the fact is, no, I didn't. There, there was no problem in playing the same character. I mean, Tom was a, a great character to play and fairly close to me in many ways, as was Rafferty. But, you know, like Rafferty was much smarter than me and uh, Tom is much braver than me, you know. Like I would never do some of the things that Tom did. The other thing, of course, I'm reminded of is that Tom was a Vietnam veteran and uh, I was anti-Vietnam. I was involved with the moratoriums and things like that. But I developed a great affinity with Tom's character and with his Vietnam service. And uh, we met, while we were doing that show, we met a lot of Vietnam vets and uh, for various reasons, you know, storyline reasons. But I, when I was talking to them, I... I would hear these stories about how badly treated they were by successive Australian governments, you know, a government that had sent them away to fight a war and then never compensated them for their PTSD or injuries. And, and I, I was outraged by that and I became a, a staunch advocate of Vietnam Vets Association and made several speeches on their behalf and... Uh, the shows you do do have an influence on your life, but as I said, I've never made a citizen's arrest. And uh, well, I guess because you learn and grow. Do you know? Um, you remind me of Gene Hackman. Really? Yeah, you do. <laughs> do you, I, I, I mean, I love him as an actor, but I feel that you have that authentic that who you are. Like I, I, I read once about him that what you see is what you get, and I imagine that that's you as well. That. You know, you're well, I think that's probably pretty accurate. I, it's very uh, flattering to be <laughs> identified as somebody like him. I mean, he's a bloody fantastic actor. But Yeah, but so are you. Well, thank you. But, uh, you know, I think, yeah, what you see is what you get. Yeah, there's, there's something quite authentic about it that I do understand that you're acting, but you really, under, and I guess that's what makes a good actor is that you are acting, but underneath that is the personality of the person, of the actor, isn't it? I think the, I, look, you know, the there's no secret about acting. I think I think the important thing is that level of honesty. You know, like you've got to take the character and play it as honestly as you can, and usually you, you use your own values or your own personality to help create the character. You know, I mean, it's they're not you. They're never going to be you. I mean, there's no way that I would. Uh, stand in front of somebody holding a gun saying, now, listen, son, take me. <laughs> it's just, you know, but Tom Tom could do that. I, there's no way that I could do it. I'd be a quivering wreck. It's just the uh, finding the level of honesty, I think, and belief in the character is the important thing. And, uh, I think that and as I was saying before, you know, people say, oh, didn't you get bored? I said, well, no, never, because I loved working with the people I was working with, uh, the actors and the crew. We were a big extended family and we we went through marriages and 
separations and births and deaths and, you know, like huh? it was it was wonderful. And, and every week you would walk into Tom's office and there'd be a new person there, a person you'd never met before or there'd be a person that had been an, a, a really close friend at a different time in your career. It's a... You know, I, I love the business. I'm, you know, in these COVID times, I'm. Uh, I was real. I realised that I haven't spoken to another actor since before Easter, mm. you know, and I'm actually starting to have withdrawal symptoms. But it's, um, you know, I love the business, and I, you know, I love working with those people. And it's a it's a weird industry. You, you know, you come together and you create a cast like Blue Healers or Rafferty's Rules or with any play like Death of a Salesman, which was the first professional thing I did, or the last thing, the, the, the David Williamson uh, Crunch Time, which was David's last play, you know, you form a, a really familial relationship with people and you, and as I point out in the book, uh, Lillian Hellman's uh, introduction to Pentimento, you form this relationship and then the play finishes and you say goodbye to each other and swear that you'll see each other again soon and you, you never see each other again. Mm-hmm. You know, you go off, you drift into a different job and you form a new family and they form a new family and that family becomes the most important and then that breaks up and you go through the same experience over and over again. And I've, I've been through that experience, you know, like in hundreds of plays and several television series. And it's, uh, it's always tragic when it finishes, finishing it, ending a show is always very sad, but then you're always starting a new one and that's joyous and refreshing and, we're going to have to end on that note. Great memoir. It's called How I Clawed My Way to the Middle. I have really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, and I hope this world becomes normal again soon and you get to see your act. Yes, it would be nice. It's uh, not looking too promising at the no, moment. But, uh, no. You keep well and you keep safe. Thank you. Thank you. Good luck to everyone out there. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.